0: I still remember the first dive. I jumped in the water and as soon as my bubbles cleared, wow, it was like diving right into a Cousteau TV show. All the animals that he showed us that had disappeared from the sea of my childhood were there, the groupers, the octopus, the scorpion fish, schools of sea It was absolutely extraordinary. So that day was my first epiphany.
1: That was the voice of Dr. Enrique Sala, the founder of National Geographic's Pristine Seas Initiative, and one of the most famous marine conservationists of our time. My name is Lucy Kleiner, and this is The Nature Dilemma, a podcast series by Osa Conservation dedicated to, inspired by, and created in the last wild places on Earth. These stories help us understand the dilemma between humanity and the planet humanity depends on. We'll tap into the knowledge of experts around the world and take you to some of the most pristine and vulnerable wildernesses on Earth. I'm reporting from the Osa Conservation Biological Station, surrounded by Costa Rica's ancient rainforests. Join me as I look for answers from the top conservationists, scientists, and nature nerds around the world. Today, we're going to talk to Dr. Enrique Sala about diving with sharks, dining with presidents, and the epiphany that led to the largest marine reserves on the planet. I'm really excited to learn about the work Dr. Sala is doing around the world, specifically for our planet's oceans. Dr. Enrique Sala was a former university professor who left academia to dedicate his life to conservation. Today, he is a National Geographic explorer in residence and is also the founder of National Geographic's Pristine Seas Initiative. Pristine Seas has helped protect nearly 6 million square kilometers of ocean within 22 of the largest marine reserves on the planet. So basically, Dr. Sala is an underwater hero. How are you doing today, Dr. Sala?
0: Hi, Lucy. You are so kind and hyperbolic, but thank you so much for this wonderful introduction. I'm very well and very happy to be talking with you today.
1: I'm happy you're here as well. Just this year, Dr. Sala's book, The Nature of Nature, Why We Need the Wild, was published. The book touches on everything from the smallest ecosystems to some of the largest and perhaps most daunting questions like our human relationship to the world around us. In the book, it's summarized as ecology for people in a hurry. But Dr. Sala, you describe the book as your love letter to the planet. And that's really what I want to talk about today. Can you tell me just a little bit more about yourself and the inspiration behind the work you do?
0: I am a recovering academic. I used to be a professor at the University of California, studying the impacts of humans in the ocean, the impacts of fishing and global warming. But one day I realized that I was just writing the obituary of ocean life. I felt like the doctor who's telling you how you're going to die with excruciating detail, but not offering a cure. So, I decided to quit my comfortable job as a professor and dedicate the rest of my life to the cure, to help bring back some of that richness and diversity of the ocean. So, I'm still doing science, but now also doing film production, lots of policy work, lots of uh, communication, negotiation, persuasion, also doing some economic research, lots of different things. But, you know, I still am like that little kid who was totally in love with nature.
1: And that's what I want to explore a little bit more. Your book and the work you do really talks about protecting the planet in general. But you, as a little kid, fell in love with a specific part of the planet, which was the underwater world, the oceans. Can you tell me a little bit about that first moment that you really fell in love with the sea?
0: When I was a little boy growing up on the Mediterranean coast of Spain, I think I fell in love with the ocean through TV, watching the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau. I was completely fascinated by Cousteau and his divers and the adventures and the exploration of the underwater world, this mysterious world that nobody knew much about. As was the rest of my family, by the way, watching the shows on Sunday evening, We, we were all glued to the TV and I was also very lucky that I spent my summers on the coast, my father was working at the restaurant during the summer and my mom, my younger brother and I spent our days on the beach. And I still remember the day I saw my first sea star. It was a red sea star when I was a kid snorkeling. Maybe I was six and there was this red starfish. And that's a memory that uh, still, it's still in my mind. So I think it was in that early age that I, fell in love with the ocean and I've been in love with the ocean since.
1: And those early days you mentioned a lot throughout your work and especially in your book that you developed this perceived baseline of what the ocean looked like. You say you saw one red starfish and it blew your mind. It was beautiful. And you continue talking about how our baselines have shifted. Can you explain that phenomenon a little bit to me and maybe tell me someone who has snorkeled off the Oregon coast a few times in my life and been really cold and seen a handful of sea urchin, what the bottom of the ocean can look like.
0: Yeah, a baseline is our benchmark, is our our reference. And when it comes to nature, we believe that what's natural is what we see when we are kids, right? But that red star that I saw, yeah, it was very nice. But that place where I was swimming when I was a kid used to be full of large fish, including large grouper and sea breams and even coastal sharks. And they were all gone in the early 70s when I was swimming there. So my baseline had shifted because what I thought was natural was not because we started degrading nature and the ocean far before we started studying the ocean with modern technology. You know When Cousteau started filming in the Mediterranean in the mid-40s, and that was amazing. But imagine how was the Mediterranean 200 years before that, right? But we don't have underwater images of that world. This is why my friend Daniel Polly from the University of British Columbia called this syndrome, the, the syndrome of the shifting baselines. And this is something that affects everybody, not just the ocean, but you know, ourselves and our daily lives, for example. Had you thought two years ago or even a year ago that you would be looking for cool masks online, you know, not just even thinking about wearing a mask every time you go out of the house, but actually masks have become part of the normal, the new normal, right? So, and people are, are shopping for masks that are cool or have a message, right? That's uh, that's not what was normal a year ago. So we have examples of shifting baselines uh, throughout the world, but the environmental shifting baselines are probably the most pervasive.
1: Absolutely. And I can imagine if you're born into a time when everybody around you is wearing masks, you just believe that that's how the world is and that's how it should be. And that's maybe even how it always was. And I think that that kind of speaks to what you're saying on the ocean that you see a beautiful landscape that's so foreign to you and you believe that this is beautiful amazing and what it always was can you describe to me what the bottoms of our ocean can look like or what they maybe used to look like
0: well let's go back to my childhood when i was swimming there and i was i was confused because despite the beautiful red starfish, the fishes that the abundance that Cousteau showed us on tv wasn't there the big groupers the monk seal the dolphins I didn't see any when I was a kid, and I thought that the Mediterranean was, or at least where I lived, was a poor place, you know, naturally, that all this richness and diversity that Cousteau showed us on his documentaries were something that belonged only to remote or exotic locations. But then when I turned 18, I did my first scuba dive in a marine reserve of the coast of Catalonia, the Medas Islands Marine Reserve which had been protected for several years. And I still remember the first dive. I jumped in the water, and as soon as my bubbles cleared, wow, it was like diving right into a Cousteau TV show. All the animals that he showed us that I hadn't seen that had disappeared from the sea of my childhood were there. The groupers, the octopus, the scorpion fish, schools of sea It was absolutely extraordinary. So that day was my first epiphany. That first dive of the Metas Islands Reserve was the time where I realized, wow, so this is what the rest of the coast used to be like? This is what I missed during my childhood? It took me 18 years to actually (laughs) see this in the only place that was protected in the Catalan coast back then. The only place, just one square kilometer. That was my realization of the shifting baseline, you know, 20 years before I read about the shifting baselines and underst- understood that that was a general problem with humanity.
1: Wow. And just one square kilometer, there was that big of a difference.
0: You know, it doesn't take much. One square kilometer has the largest abundance of fish in the Mediterranean. You know, pounds of fish per hectare there are off the charts. You We know that the larger the protected areas, the more benefits they have and the larger an ecosystem they protect and the better it is for for biodiversity but in the ocean it doesn't take much you know one square kilometer is already capable of producing spectacular results but if you want to bring back the big fish and the fish that move longer distances because groupers tend to stick to their territories then you need bigger areas. And this is something that we have seen around the world, that the bigger the areas, the more species uh, you protect.
1: And there's value between having those large areas, and you mentioned the small areas that connect it. The bigger, the better, but also to have small areas around the world, you need both, right?
0: Absolutely. If you think about remote areas, remote islands in the middle of the Pacific, for example, that are uninhabited, we can create huge areas around those islands that are bigger than some countries, as, as we have seen with pristine seas and, and working with visionary governments in the last vision of a marine reserve that will be thousands and thousands of square kilometers. So in the Mediterranean, the solution would be thousands and thousands of one square kilometer or 10 square kilometer reserves, thousands of smaller reserves with local benefits, right? That would be totally acceptable and definitely much better than what we have today because in the Mediterranean only 0.4% of the Mediterranean is in areas that are truly protected. If we want to prevent the extinction of 1 million species and the collapse of our life support system, and if we want nature to help us achieve the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement, we need half of the planet in natural state with functional ecosystems that can capture much of the greenhouse gas emissions, like our carbon pollution in the atmosphere. So we can start by committing to protect at least 30% by 2030. And this means 30% of the land and 30% of the ocean. And this is a minimum.
1: And I'm so excited to learn more about the value of protecting these areas and something that I think a lot of people are interested in hearing about. And you mentioned in your book is kind of the first question you receive when talking about protecting areas. What's the cost? What's in it for humanity? And I want to dive into that later. But selfishly, as a young conservationist who has looked up to you as an explorer for so long, I want to hear about your life at sea and some of the expeditions that you've been on.
0: They are extraordinary, because after having spent so many years working in places that are degraded, when we started going to places that are near Pristine, it completely changed the way we think about the ocean. And let me give you an example. The first place we went to with Pristine Seas in 2009 It's a very remote and uninhabited coral reef archipelago, the Southern Line Islands that belongs to the Republic of Kiribati in the Central Pacific. It's north of French Polynesia around the equator. And these islands are like the ocean a thousand years ago. I remember going to this wonderful place called Millennium Atoll, the classic atoll with palm trees, turquoise water lagoon, and nobody. We were... On expedition on these islands for five weeks and we did not see a single other ship or a person and you jump in the water and within seconds you are surrounded by sharks 12 15 gray reef sharks that come to check you out we were probably the first humans they ever saw because nobody ever goes to these places and you look down 80 to 90 percent of the bottom is covered by life thriving coral it's a beautiful coral garden with so many fish swimming in between the corals and then snorkeling in the lagoon, there were these pavements of giant clams of blues and reds and browns and oranges and greens, all iridescent colors that covered the reef. In some places there were five or more giant clams per square meter, like a mosaic of giant clams. And we hadn't seen this anywhere, anywhere. And, and the good news is that We have been to a few other pristine places. We've been to 30 places in the last 12 years. And we've seen this thing over and over and over. When you go to one of these remote and inhabited and fished places, there are some common characteristics. And one of them is the abundance of large predators, be it sharks or sea lions and seals. If you don't have humans, you have much more nature. Unfortunately, sadly, this is the, the reality. So for us, every one of these expeditions has been extraordinary. And I don't get tired of it. Our team doesn't get tired of it. Every place is like the first place because you know you're going to find something extraordinary, but you don't know exactly how it's going to be.
1: And talk about extraordinary. You just almost breezed over the fact that you jumped in, your bubbles cleared, and you were surrounded by sharks. Is that not absolutely horrifying?
0: (laughs) Yeah, usually people, when they hear sharks, they get out of the water. When our team hears sharks, we jump in <laughs> for several reasons. Well, first, sharks are the best indicator of the health of a coral reef, right? If you have abundant sharks, it means that there is abundant prey. The sharks are on top of the food web. So if they're abundant, it means that everything below them is abundant, which means a healthy ecosystem. It's as simple as this. And also people believe that sharks are these killing machines that have been in the ocean for 300 million years, evolving just to eat humans. But every year, more people kill themselves taking selfies with their smartphones than killed by sharks. (laughs) That's just one of the funny statistics that show that we shouldn't worry so much about sharks.
1: So what you're saying is when sharks are surrounding you, that is when you're at your happiest point.
0: Absolutely. Just by talking about it, it just made me very nostalgic about our expeditions and I cannot wait for the COVID era to end so we can go back at sea. It's been a good time for us to plan and think and finish things and also the rest. But we are ready if the COVID situation allows. But there are so many unknowns, so much uncertainty now when it comes to uh, controlling the disease in country and also the availability of a vaccine um, that is going to be available to people around the world. So. Uh, but yes, as soon as it's safe, our team is dying. We have our diving gear packed.
1: You're ready to get back to that expedition life. I can see it on your face right now and that smile. <laughs> Tell me a little bit more about what life is like at an expedition at sea. Are you waking up super early? Are you diving every single day? What does that even look like?
0: Yes, we wake up early. So let's say that we go to a place that we have never seen before and there are a bunch of islands and we are going to spend two three or four weeks there. So we first map a route to try to hit as many different locations as possible to capture the variability in these places, right? From um, sheltered coves to more exposed capes or offshore islands. So we try to cover as much space, as much geography as possible within that time frame. And then every day we do mainly two things. One is collect scientific data and two is collect images, film for our uh, pristine seas documentaries. So we have a team of scientists and a team of uh, media that are topside media on the boat or on the small boats on the zodiacs or, or go on land on these islands and the underwater filming team. And then we have the science team. We have then another team going offshore with the small boats to drop the deep cameras, automated deep cameras, and also to uh, deploy baited cameras that are attached to a buoy, and we'll let them for for an hour and then come back and pick them up to film all these animals that live in the blue that you usually you don't see like marlin or oceanic sharks or big whales, things that you don't see diving, right? For the diving team, and I'm part of the diving team, well, I started counting fish, of course, but now I do still photography and I am with the media team, which is the thing that I, I enjoy the most right now. Um. I've counted enough fish in my life. <laughs> we wake up at 7, have breakfast. At 8, 8.30, we go out for the first dive. People who dive with scuba tanks, they do two, two dives in the morning, come back for lunch, enter data in the computer, rest a little bit, eliminate some of the nitrogen from the body after two dives, and then go back for another dive in the afternoon. I dive with the media team and we have closed-circuit Uh, system. So we have these rebreathers. We have these tanks that you don't exhale bubbles and CO2 to the water, but you exhale air that goes back through another tube. It goes back to a canister where a canister separates the carbon from the oxygen. The carbon is is captured there and the oxygen goes back to the circuit so you can breathe it again. So we can be underwater for three hours if the water is not too cold. So we do one long dive in the morning and one long dive in the afternoon, and we spend between four and six hours per day under underwater. And then in the evening, after we come back, we rinse our gear, we prepare everything, fill the tanks for the day after, uh, charge batteries, download images, enter the data in the computer. The team gets together and talk about how it went and plan for the next day. And we have three or four small boats going out and in at the same time, so we have to plan the logistics. Then we have dinner and when we started doing expeditions, we watched a film every night just to relax. Now it's just, <laughs> I don't know if we're getting old or what, but after dinner, we are so tired that we go to bed and collapse. And I often stay up to write a, a daily blog or an Instagram post from, from that day and and write my daily journal of, of the expedition. Sometimes it's 11, sometimes it's midnight when I go to bed, and then I, I woke up at seven again, and we do this for weeks at a time, every day. You go to bed so tired, so exhausted, and so happy. As long as we are in a place with abandoned marine life, you know, we're happy.
1: What's the most challenging part of your expeditions?
0: The most challenging part is the weather, the things that we cannot control, right? because sometimes we go to a place and the weather is fantastic and we can work well sometimes the weather is really rough and we cannot go out and if people are happy when they are diving and seeing lots of life people are not so happy when they have to spend days on a boat you know idle or entering data or writing we spend so much time and and it's not inexpensive to to organize this expedition so every day counts for us, um, you know, we're really restless if we have to spend more than one day without diving or without going out because of the weather. But this is the most challenging part dealing with this uncertainty. And, you know, at some point you have to just be zen. And when I started, I was much more nervous about these things, but now I'm much more zen. And some days the sea doesn't want us to go, and we just have to accept that.
1: What an interesting statement to even come out of your mouth that saying when I don't get to spend four to six hours a day underwater, I get restless.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I've been restless for months now.
1: I'm sure. I'm (laughs) sure. And like I said, I hope the sea welcomes you back soon. Like you just mentioned, expeditions are costly, they're expensive, and it's a lot of hard work back to back. But it seems like one of the pillars of pristine seas is really focusing on expeditions and being able to translate this knowledge from the counting of the fish to global knowledge and taking action.
0: Yeah, well expeditions are one part of it because you know we work with local communities, we work with local organizations. And to get a place protected, you need local buy-in unless there is a place without people, then you only have to talk to the government, but you know you need to work both from the bottom up and the top down. We need local communities or people living near these areas or using these areas to not only agree to this but to make them ma- make them their own protected areas right they have to they have to feel ownership they have to benefit from them but we also need to persuade the government leaders to do this because these protected areas are created by law and laws you know they don't happen at the community level in most places happen at the government level so we need both and to be able to achieve this We need a lot of time with the community, lots of community work, but also the expeditions with the scientific research and the filming, then economic research to show the benefits of protection relative to the status quo, production of films, and then screening of films to the government leaders in the community and the right audiences to inspire them to make an emotional connection, to grab them by the heart first. So they decide to to protect this area. So it's a lot of work. The expeditions are probably the most exciting part. They, and they are absolutely essential in our model. But it takes a lot of time out of the water, talking to people to make these things happen.
1: One of my favorite quotes from your book is you mentioned that the secret to protecting the seas is to make people fall in love with them. And like you just mentioned, that is from the bottom up and from the top down. And you also talk about the fact that before Pristine Seas, you were doing the work, putting in the hours, doing these long, hard expeditions, counting the fish, publishing research papers, and there was just kind of this concept that the research was out there, and now it's everyone's job to read that and understand that. Can you talk a little bit about this, this personal shift or journey that you went through to get to where you are now? Well,
0: When you are a scientist at the university, they train you to produce scientific papers that are rigorous. They're replicable, following a series of you know, methodological standards. And usually they are written in journals that are read only by experts. And today we have thousands of scientific journals. It's impossible. If you're a politician, if you're a decision maker, I mean, you don't have time in your day to read the newspaper, the local newspaper. How are you going to have time to read scientific articles about so many different things that you should care about, right? It's impossible, even for scientists. I remember the times where we went to the library at the university and every month there would be the new issue of the scientific journals that would come. And maybe there were 10 or 12 in our area and we would be able to be up to date with what was published. Today it's impossible. It's thousands and thousands of journals and and marine biology journals. There are dozens and dozens. So you could spend all of your life just reading what other people produce, or you can have Google Alerts and get, you know, there are ways for you to be up to date. But the amount of information that is produced today is absolutely extraordinary. So when I was in academia, I thought that, well, you know, the job as a scientist is to produce the information, and somebody, the decision maker, no, you know, they should be aware of our research. Imagine how arrogant. <laughs> they should be aware of our research. And then if they have the scientific information, they will be able to make rational decisions. But, you know, we know that the world doesn't work like that and that people make lots of irrational decisions all the time, every day, um, several times a day for things that are important, for things that are not so important. So when I left academia, I had to unlearn some of the things I learned during my years at the university. And I had to learn about behavioral economics for example you not know, behavioral science and understand what makes people take certain decisions and what can we do to incentivize the right decisions and this is something that i had to learn yeah, after i left <laughs> the university and this was when the shift happened i realized that phew, we cannot make people do the right things because of the brain because these politicians have to make decisions every day about many difficult things. And many of these decisions are made without having all the information. Many decisions are made without having any information. So I quickly learned that first, we need to make these decision makers fall in love with that place that we want to protect. If they see it with their own eyes, or if they see it through our films, and they understand that this is something unique and irreplaceable, that belongs to their country, and that they can do something about it, then we come with their things for the brain. We come with the science and the economics to justify the decisions that they have already made in their mind based on this emotional connection to the place.
1: And it makes me smile because thinking back to the beginning of this interview, when I asked you why you fell in love with the oceans, you mentioned... Storytelling. You said that it came from, as you call it in your book, La Caja Tonta, verdad, the the dumb box, the TV box. The dumb box. (laughs) Uh And and now it's it's inspiring to see that you've harnessed that power of storytelling and you're trying to do the same thing. And we've done a number of interviews like this with top scientists, politicians, researchers around the world. And when you ask someone something like, Why the oceans, why the tapirs, why the tropical jungle? Nobody is saying. Well, I got an alert from Google Scholar and I read this paper and it made me fall in love. People are saying it's the smells, the feeling, the touch of being in these places, experiencing them and the stories that come along with that, right?
0: You are absolutely right. I mean, you said it perfectly.
1: And it's obvious that Pristine Seas does really focus on that, on really making people fall in love. Like you said, after you have that heart connection then the tougher questions come in of, okay, what's this going to cost and what's in it for me? Me being humanity, me being the local people that are fishing on a small level in this area that you want to protect and the large industries, the large fishing industry that supports a base of our economics. What do you say to those people when those tough questions come?
0: No, now you're talking like a minister of finance or a minister of fisheries. Exactly. This is exactly the question. Well, yeah, sure. How much this is going to cost, right? And how how is it going to harm fisheries? 82% of the fish stocks in the world are overfished, which means that we are taking them out of the water faster than they can reproduce, which means that they are going down. If we fish more, they are going to go down even more. So increasing fishing is not going to give us more fish. We need to fish less in order to be able to catch more. But also we need to have these protected areas where the fish will be able to come back And produce so many more eggs and spill over the boundaries of these reserves and help to replace the fishing grounds around them and this is something that we have seen everywhere around the world fisheries are doing better and fishermen are doing better around fully protected marine areas because these areas are like investment accounts that produce a return that people can use the status quo is continuous overfishing and diminishing uh, returns so If we agree that the status quo is not an ideal situation, and that protected areas are are a solution, well, that's a a good step in the right direction. But the other one is, okay, how much is it going to cost if we have to protect 30% of the ocean? Well, let's look just at the cost for one second. We produced a study this year that showed that protecting 30% of the planet, land and sea, and land is much more expensive than the ocean, would cost $140 billion per year. That may seem like a lot of money. But the governments of the world spend $500 million per year, so almost three times more, to subsidize activities that actually destroy nature. So We spend three times more destroying nature today, government money, public money, taxpayers' money, three times more than what it would cost to protect a third of the planet. Not only that, another comparison. $140 billion is less than what the world spends today on video games. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? So, not only the cost is not so much, but the benefits of protecting 30% of the ocean and the planet would outweigh the costs. And for marine protected areas, for every dollar that governments invest in marine protected areas, the ocean gives us at least $5 in return that go to public hands, to to people, either the tourism operators or the fishermen who are catching more or local governments who don't have to spend so much money in repairing the damage that storms have done to their coast, to the coastal infrastructure, because the coral reef is there or because the mangrove forest is there protecting us from the power of the ocean, right? So the cost are with the benefits and the costs are less than what we use now to subsidize the industries that destroy nature i mean if you think about it rationally unless you are a special interest unless you are somebody whose short term profit is dependent on destroying nature you know it, it makes so much sense now the global economic output would be so much greater if we protected 30% of the ocean than what we're doing now
1: So what you're saying is even if you are motivated purely by an economic standpoint, investing in nature is the long-term answer.
0: Absolutely. Because, you know, fisheries are a diminishing, a shrinking sector. Uh, Before COVID, the projections were that fisheries as an economic sector was shrinking 1.5% every year. While, for example, Marine tourism, diving tourism and, and tourism for you know, nature ecotourism was growing between five and six percent every year. I mean, if you want to if you're an investor, do you want to invest in something that is shrinking every year or something that grows like nine times faster? I mean it's it's a no brainer.
1: So you mentioned earlier, I sound like a finance minister. So if I'm playing that role right now, and I would say, okay, so I see there is some benefit of protecting the areas. So why not protect areas and have limited fishing? Does that give you the same effects as a completely protected no-take marine zone?
0: Uh, Very simple. No, it doesn't. (laughs) Like you have an investment account, you have a principal, you have an endowment or a trust fund, you don't want to touch the principal. Do you want to touch your 401k? No, you want to. When it's time for you to retire, you hopefully will will get an annual revenue every year from from the principal. But if you touch the principal, you're going to get less returns. I mean, it's a, it's as simple as this. So we have done research that shows that if you protect an area fully from fishing, on average, you will get a six hundred percent increase in the abundance of fish. Six hundred percent in areas that are protected. But allow some types of fishing, you will not even be able to double the abundance of fish in these reserves. Wow. So if you want marine life to come back, it has to be no take reserves. If you want to improve the fisheries locally, then you want no take marine reserves, because the more fish you have inside, you have inside the reserve, the greater the spillover of fish is going to be.
1: Yeah, can we talk about that spillover effect? Because I think I live in Costa Rica on the Osa Peninsula, so very close to the Pacific coast and the Golfo Dulce Gulf. And a lot of communities there have a lot of local fishers who, based on your work, you're saying would actually benefit from having no take zones. Am I understanding that correctly?
0: Absolutely. So it's very simple. If you don't kill the fish, they take a longer time to die. <laughs> they live longer lives and they become much larger. And we know that the larger females produce a disproportionately larger number of eggs. So you have a female rockfish, for example, that could be uh, 40 centimeters long, and that fish produces 100,000 eggs. You let it grow a third more, and that one female will go from 100,000 eggs to one and a half million eggs, right? Uh, so the accumulation of fish abundance, the, the reproductive pot- potential inside the reserve is like compound interest when you have a, a investment account. So the fish will live longer, grow larger, have more sex to, during more years and produce a disproportionately larger amount of eggs. So that all helps to produce more fish and replenish the areas around. And we know from uh, studies on clams and scallops, species that don't move, or lobsters, species that move a little bit, all the way to tuna that move hundreds or thousands of miles every year that not take reserves helps to improve the catch and, and rise the livelihood of the income of fishermen around no take areas all around the world. So the evidence is there.
1: And now you just need to catch people's attention with by pulling people in with the heart because you have all of this information to help make a rational decision. But if we're just going to go on passion, you're working to get that as well.
0: Yes. And not, not only that, but you need also the right messenger, right? Because if I go to the fishermen in Osa Peninsula and tell them about this, well, they might believe me or not because I'm not from there. I don't know if I'm the right, a trusted messenger. But if I bring a fisherman from another place in Latin America, who has helped to create a reserve and benefited from it, you know, then you know they might believe that man more than than me. So it's not only a question of having the right information, but it's about communicating that information. We need to have the trusted messengers in place.
1: And you just mentioned if you were to go to the Osa Peninsula, talk to these communities you'd want to deliver the right message. But you you actually have spent some time in the Osa Peninsula, both on land and out in the sea. Yes. Can you tell me about some of your diving expeditions in the area? I've seen on your social media, especially your Instagram, you have some amazing, breathtaking images from in the area. Absolutely,
0: the Isla del Caño. It's a little island, only a few kilometers offshore. That is like a little Cocos Island. It has so many fish. The only thing that is missing is the big schools of sharks, the, the big sharks. They've been overfished. But since it was uh, protected, most of the uh, smaller fish have come back. And it's one of the most amazing places I've seen in, in Central America. But th- the first time I went to the Peninsula de Osa was actually on land. I was a backpacker, was a student in 1993, maybe with a couple of friends, backpacking and taking buses. We spent a month in Costa Rica bird watching. And, and we crossed the Corcovado National Park on foot from you know, the, the beach in the Pacific. <laughs> we went to La, Sire- La Sirena River and then crossed the, the, the park on foot, on land. And it was absolutely extraordinary. As you said before, the smells and the sounds. And that was my first time in a virgin, pristine, tropical forest. It was one of the most wonderful experiences of my life.
1: It's hard to come by. And there are very few wild places that are truly wild left on Earth. And Costa Rica in specific has done a really fabulous job with conservation on land. Like you just mentioned, you can go to these national, pristine, protected areas and just have an experience that's really unlike any other. What's the potential for an area like Costa Rica that's done so well on land to do in their oceans?
0: Costa Rica is a great example of land conservation, but it has a lot to do on marine conservation. Today, only 1% of Costa Rica's waters are fully protected. And Costa Rica has much more ocean surface than land surface. Cocos Island is is great, but it's relatively small compared to the, to the country. And there is a lot of illegal fishing, people trying to get in and, and catch tuna and sharks. So Costa Rica is the co-chair of the High Ambition Coalition for Nature and People. And it's a leading group of countries that are supporting a target of 30% of the planet, land and sea, protected by 2030. And Costa Rica is committed to achieve this global target. And as a leading country, it has an opportunity and also responsibility of protecting much more of their waters. And we know that in Costa Rica, like in many other countries, there is a sector of the industrial fishing lobby that dominates the conversation and it's always very difficult to get the industrial fishing fleets to behave responsibly and sustainably right so it is quite easy for industrial fleets to deplete to overfish the ocean but if you want to protect even a tiny part of it they make your life impossible as you know very well working on, on OSA conservation so there is a big difference between the coastal fishermen, artisanal fishermen, who tend to have a better understanding and appreciation of their environment and understand that they rely heavily on, on a healthy ocean. And the industrial fishing fleet, the guys who own the big boats that go out and try to kill as many sharks and tuna as possible. And, and in many cases, we know illegally because we have lots of satellite data showing that. So. The opportunity for Costa Rica is to engage with the coastal communities, try to uh, resuscitate, uh, rehabilitate, restore, regenerate the coastal fisheries, invest in well-managed coastal fisheries with a system of no-take areas that would bring back the richness, the diversity, and the productivity of the coastal zone.
1: And like you mentioned when you were talking about your time on land at Costa Rica, you went to this pristine forest and it was just breathtaking, the smells, the feeling of being there. Do you think that there's potential for you to have those same just awe-inspiring experiences while diving on the coastlines of Costa Rica if we take action now to protect those oceans? Or is it too late, it's too far gone?
0: No, no, it's not too late. Isla del Caño is a great example. Carlos Manuel Rodriguez, the former Minister of Environment of Costa Rica, came uh, to visit us on the expedition. And he couldn't believe it. When he dived with us, he said, wow, I dove here years ago. And it wasn't as good as now. You know, it, it takes time for marine life to recover. But when it comes back, it's spectacular. And it is much better than what he even thought. And I hadn't been there. And knowing, having dived in other places along the Pacific coast of Costa Rica and even Cahuita in, in the Caribbean, there's almost nothing there. It's so sad. So I didn't have great expectations for Isla del Caño. But it is an otic area that is well-enforced and it's spectacular. So the rest of the coast of Costa Rica could be like this.
1: And as a country that is so focused on ecotourism, that can do nothing but help and push that economy forward if you're focusing on the economic value of course we could spend another hour talking about the natural value of that as well i don't want to take up too much of your time like i said i've been looking forward to having this conversation with you for so long so i could keep you here forever (laughs) Uh, we talked a little bit about looking forward what your goal is with pristine seas what the international kind of environmental goals are protecting 30 percent of the planet by 2030 on land in sea. Let's look back really quickly. Can you speak back to that younger version of yourself, living on the coast of Catalonia with your family? What advice would you give that younger Enrique?
0: Don't wait until the, le- the legal age to start diving. <laughs> you know, I had to wait until I turned 18. Try to f- try to figure out how to dive as soon as possible. Spend more time underwater, spend more time in the forest, on the beach. Um, Instead of doing just one major, uh, do two majors on botany and zoology at the university. Start reading um, much earlier. Spend less time playing soccer and doing the things that teenagers do and spend more time on nature. Of course, I didn't know back then, but knowing what I know now, that's what I would, would do, spend much, much more time in nature.
1: It's funny. That's the exact same advice my dad gives me, so <laughs> I think it might be universal. Wise man. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the last question I have for you is, what are you most proud of?
0: 23 marine reserves covering twice the size of India. It is not me. It is, it is not me. It's not our team. It's the governments and communities who create uh, these this reserves. You know, we've had a role in um, raising the profile, bringing them to this to these people, producing the scientific research and the films to inspire them to do it, and providing the arguments and making it easy for them to to make those decisions. But it's seeing that map with the twenty three marine reserves from the Arctic to the Southern Ocean through the temperate seas and the tropics. That's something that I would have never imagine not even in my wildest dreams and that's the thing that makes me most proud of
1: and i'm so excited to see what comes next for you for pristine seas and for for the rest of us to reap those benefits so thank you again so much for for your work and for your time today for people around the world how can they find you and support your efforts
0: pristine our website pristine This is where people can find information about our project and the different expeditions and the marine protected areas. But also, uh, if you want to learn more or purchase my book, The Nature of Nature, you can go to enriksala.com or go to any of these places online where where you can purchase books.
1: Fabulous. Once again, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for your time over the past two decades. And I look forward to connecting with you, hopefully in the OSA, sometime soon.
0: I hope so. Thank you so much, Lucy. It's been such a treat to talk with you today and good luck with uh, the wonderful work that you're doing with your team at OSA Conservation. Thank you.
1: Once again, that was Dr. Enrique Sala, founder of National Geographic's Pristine Seas Initiative. You can find him online at the Pristine Seas website or on social media at Enrique Sala. While you're there, check out at OSA Conservation on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for conservation news straight from the field. That's at OSA Conservation. If you enjoyed the show and you're passionate about understanding and bettering our relationship with the natural world, tune in to the next episode of The Nature Dilemma, and be sure to share the podcast with your friends, family, and everyone you know who cares about our dependence on nature. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Once again, my name is Lucy Kleiner, and this is The Nature Dilemma, brought to you by Osa Conservation. Thank you so much for listening.